there was an ancient uh, Chinese custom of binding the feet of young girls, bandaging their feet. And the idea was it would make their feet very, very beautiful. Sadly, however, uh, it had the effect of leaving many of them as they grew older to be well nigh crippled uh, and unable to walk properly because their feet hadn't grown and hadn't developed properly. Proper growth and proper development is really important and growth and development is a key idea in Paul's letter to the Colossians. So in the reading that uh, Nigel gave us earlier, chapter two, verse six, I, I've got the NIV here, which says, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. But literally, as it came out in uh, Nigel's uh, uh, version, so walk in him. Or again, in chapter one and verse 10, Paul is praying for the Colossians and he says, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit, there's growth, you see, in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So growing, going on, is really important in the Christian life. The day that I became a Christian, the missionary who was speaking at the meeting at which I came to faith said to me, don't get saved and stuck. Or in the words of Colossians 2 verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. But just as the binding of the feet of those Chinese girls hindered their growth, so in this letter, Paul is concerned that there are things that could hinder the Colossian Christians from growing. In particular, he's concerned, he touches on it in verse uh, 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. I'm not going to unpack all he's saying in that verse there, but suffice it to say that he's referring to a false teaching which promised much, a view of holiness which said that it would deliver the goods, but in reality, it didn't depend upon Christ, but on something else. It would be a dead end. He's going to identify four aspects of this false teaching. And these four aspects are still very much in the world today. They take a different form, but in essence and in principle, what Paul is concerned about in this letter is still a very real threat today, where we can take up with a view of living the Christian life, a view of holiness where we think we are going forward. But in fact, all that's happening is that we are being crippled from really making progress. Not to make progress and to know it is one thing, but to think that we've got the key to really going on spiritually when the opposite is happening is really very, very dangerous. And that's what Paul is dealing with in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. And those are the verses we're going to consider this morning. We're going to look at four wrong views of living the Christian life. Here is the first. It's in verses 16 and 17. Don't look back the way of legalism. 
don't look back the way of legalism, verses 16 and 17, which read as follows. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality of the body, however, is found in Christ. Put yourself for a few moments in the shoes of these Colossian Christians. They've been converted from quite a pagan background. You can read about that in the next chapter, verses 5 to 7, where he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So these Colossian Christians had been converted from a pagan background. Now they've got to live out this new life, but they are surrounded, of course, by all this paganism. And the question is, how are they going to survive, let alone thrive in such an environment? How are they going to persevere and go on living a distinctively Christian lifestyle when they've come out of such a background? And of course, they are surrounded by people who are still living like that. That's still a relevant question, isn't it? How are you and I going to live godly lives in a world that is increasingly paganized, increasingly secularized? How are we going to survive, let alone how are we going to thrive? Now, it's at that point that this wrong teaching kicked in, because it went something like this. There were people who were saying, look here, there's been another group of people that has been able not only to survive, but to thrive in the midst of a pagan environment. The Jewish people. And the way in which the Jewish people have survived and thrived is because of two things. First, they've got food laws. Those food laws are such that they didn't go out and have a meal with a non-Jew because they may be given food that breaks their food laws, food that isn't kosher. Therefore, these food laws separate or segregate the Jewish people from the surrounding society. Then they not only have food laws, they have festival laws. He touches on it there in verse uh, 16, a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. If the food laws separate them and segregate them from their pagan neighbors, the festival laws pull them together and therefore give them a sense of identity. Therefore, these teachers said, what we need to do is to buy into this Jewish practice. And if we follow their rules about food, and if we follow their rules about festivals, we will have very little contact with the pagan world about us, and we'll have a great sense of self-identity. And of course, these food laws, these festival laws, weren't of human uh, origin. God had given them to Moses. This was part of God's word. So if you want to go on as a Christian, then go on with God's word as he laid it down to Moses and follow the food laws and the festival laws. Now, you may be thinking there, hang on, um, nobody is telling me to follow the food laws. Nobody is telling me to follow these festival laws. But in essence and in principle, that idea of the Christian life 
has always been and is still very prevalent. And it goes something like this. If you want to really grow as a Christian, you must minimize your contact with unsaved people. And you must maximize your contact with God's people. I remember um, some years ago, a, a Christian, the daughter of a, a well-known uh, pastor, he, he's, he's quite elderly now, but I remember her telling me that when she was uh, a student in university, she said that uh, all the Christians in the hall of residence, they would all sit together at mealtimes. They did everything together. They, they would come together. So at the mealtime, they would all sit and speak about their day. And she was beginning now to work through, well, was this right? She said that that was the whole thinking that had influenced me as a Christian growing up. Be with the Christians all, all the time I can. Instead of being spread out like salt, as Jesus said, you were the salt of the earth. And salt that is kept, of course, in, in the container uh, or kept in the cupboard is no good at all. It's got to get out of the salt cellar. It's got to get into the meat. So Jesus says you were the salt of the earth. We weren't like that, she said. We were like a holy huddle. We thought that was a good thing. We thought that was the way to protect ourselves and to be holy. Now, what's wrong with that teaching? Because there are aspects of it, of course, that are right. One thing's of the book of Proverbs that warns us of the company that we keep. But what is wrong with this idea? We must segregate ourselves and then spend maximum time with God's people. Well, first of all, you can do all those things without reference to fellowship with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6 is a keynote verse. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. There has to be this contact, this communion with Christ. But it's perfectly possible to minimize your contact with unbelieving people, to maximize your contact with God's people, but not to do so with reference to Jesus Christ. The second thing, of course, is that it can lead to a kind of self-righteous, satisfied smugness that judges other people. That's why Paul says to them, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Or as he has said in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And of course, if anyone says, yeah, but I don't he's on about the basic principles of this world, he actually uses almost identical language in his letter to the Galatians as he speaks about the Old Testament uh, regulations about food and festivals. Let me see if I can just refer to those verses because he says quite an astonishing thing. Um, he says to them, um, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, the, the, these were Gentiles or rather unknown by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You were observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, these were the Jewish Old Testament things. These were Gentile pagans who had come to faith in Christ, and they are now being sucked into this teaching that Paul is warning them against 
uh, and, and that he's touching on in Colossians. And he actually says, if you go back to that, it, it's really no different than going back to your pagan past, which is an astonishing thing to say. Why does he say it? Well, he gives the answer here in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The body is found in Christ. You know, you go into, the, into a primary school. It used to be so when I was in school. The reception class, you'll have up on the wall, uh, perhaps a picture of an apple and underneath the letter A. And then a, uh, a ball and the letter B, a cat and the letter C, a dog and the letter D, an egg and the letter, and you know, and we, you learn the alphabet like that. The basic principles, the alphabet, that's how we learned it through these pictures. But if you went to the local comprehensive now into the A-level group that's doing English for A-level, I think you'd be a bit astonished if they still had up on the wall a for apple, B for, for ball, C for cat, D for dog, E for egg. You'd say, well, you don't need that now. And they don't. They've taken that down. That's what Paul is saying. In the infancy stage of God's people, he taught them through pictures. And they had these shadows, these pictures. But now that Jesus has come, right, you don't need those things. That's, that's going back. That's going back. And, and all of those rules which segregated Israel from the nations around them, you remember how Peter, when he went to Cornelius, the food laws were meant to segregate Israel. But now that Christ has come and the gospel is to go out to all nations, we mustn't think like that any longer. Paul says something similar when he writes to the Corinthians. There's still to be a certain separation um, from sinful people, but notice what he actually says. He says at the end of um, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and verse 9, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a one do not even eat. Can you see how we can turn the Bible on its head? He's saying, no, you, you are to associate with people who are immoral, who are greedy, who are swindlers, etc. But if somebody calls themselves a brother and is behaving like that, ah, then you've got to withdraw. So the idea that the way to thrive as a Christian is to minimize contact with really ungodly people really is quite contrary to what the New Testament teaches because Jesus Christ was wholly harmless, separate from sinners, and yet he spent his time, of course, going in and eating amongst such. And Paul warns them there, do not, do not go down that road that's looking back. It's the way of legalism. Secondly, don't look down false humility. Verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. What's going on here? Well, there are a number of things. I just want to, with respect to angels, there are probably two things. I'm only going to highlight the uh, one of them. There's another one I won't go into, but there are two things going on here. One of them is this, that these false teachers 
laid out two truths, which were absolutely true, but they then drew a false inference. Truth number one, God is very great as our creator. We are very small as creatures. True. Secondly, God is absolutely holy. Even though we are saved, sin is still present with us. Absolutely true. But they then drew a false inference, and the false inference was this. Because God is great and we are small, excuse me, because God is holy but we are still sinful, we can't come to him directly. We need a whole list of intermediaries, and there are ranks of angels, and there are angels that are at the top of the rank, the archangel. There are seraphim who surround the throne. There are other angels, what Paul calls principalities and powers. And really, we come to a lower angel who then helps us to go up to another angel and another angel, and thus we come to God. So again, you say, well, hang on, I, I'm not really finding that as uh, much of a temptation. I haven't been called upon to worship angels and to come to God like that. But what was wrong with that teaching before I, I tried to show its practical relevance to us today? Well, God has given a mediator, is what he's saying in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, the creator and the creature have been joined in the person of Jesus. He is both creator and creature. He is both God and man, and thus he is the go-between. He is the mediator. And because of that, Paul can say, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. He then says everything else that we have in Christ in verses 11 through to 12. And thus he says here in verse um, 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility. It sounds humble. God is great. I am little. God is holy. I'm sinful. Therefore, I can't come to him. It sounds great. It sounds very humble, but it's false. Because God has given the mediator in the person of Jesus. Well, how, how does this false teaching um, manifest itself today? Let me spiral in up. I'll start out some distance from us, then come in nearer to us, and then come where it may really uh, impact our lives. Isn't this the sort of teaching you get in the Roman Catholic Church? You're going to come to God through a series of saints or through Mary. And the Christ within the Catholic Church can be, of course, very remote. Go to his mother, and his mother then will bring you to him. Isn't that, in essence and in principle, the same sort of teaching? But it's not only Roman Catholic uh, teaching. In some genuinely, authentically evangelical churches, the real business of the meeting takes place not during the main prayer time, not during the singing, not during the reading of the Bible, not during the preaching, but as you draw to the end of the meeting when ministry will take place. And ministry there doesn't mean someone speaking and getting pastoral counsel. It doesn't even mean ministry where someone shares an issue and together with a brother, they pray together about it. 
ministry is there's this powerful spiritual figure up front. And he's obviously got some special hotline to God that you haven't got because you need to come to speak to him and he will pray for you. This, of course, it's a Protestant version of what the reformers swept out in the 16th century. The priest has got some special cloak with God, which you and I haven't got. And as the Protestant reformers began to study their Bible, they said, hang on. Our Bibles teach us that there's one great high priest and every believer has the same right of access to him. Thus, they spoke of the priesthood of all believers. And that powerful spiritual person at the front, he's not got any more right of access to God than you or I have. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, period. It sounds very humble, doesn't it? Oh, I must go to the, the, the man at the front. He, he's, he's got this standing with God that I haven't got. It's a false humility. And it's a denial of the gospel. But this can impact us all in our experience in the following way. We have a bad day. We feel very, very sinful. And we say, I can't draw near to God. Why can't I draw near to God? Because I feel very sinful. It is this old heresy rearing its head. Because if we say, I can't come near to God because I feel very sinful, on the days that we do pray, we are then saying, I can come near to God because I feel very spiritual. Or because I don't feel very sinful. Even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints saw through the error of that. You read um, Daniel's great prayer in chapter 9. There's a man who clearly has an acute sense of his own sinfulness. But he's bold in his praying, isn't he? He's very bold in his praying. Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this in his exposition of Romans chapter 5. If you think you can't come to God when you're very conscious of your sin, what you're really saying is you can come to God on other occasions because you haven't sinned so much. And that is to fall back into the error of justification by works. Sounds humble, doesn't it? Sounds great. But it's false. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, how did they receive him as Lord? Well, they, they came at the first as sinners. They came realizing their great need, and they came and they cast themselves upon Christ for grace and mercy. Right, says Paul, that's how you've got to go on. Every day of your life, you have to come conscious as a sinner, coming to Christ for mercy, coming to Christ for grace, coming directly to him. When you feel that you're most wretched, you still come and cast anchor upon Jesus Christ. So don't look back the way of legalism. Don't look, don't look down the way of false humility. Thirdly, don't look in the way of mysticism. Second part of verse 18 and verse 19. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. If you've got the authorized version or the New King James, it'll say what he has not seen. But the best manuscripts 
of God about what he has seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Mysticism. I once heard Gaius Davis, the Christian psychiatrist, he was speaking at a conference, and, and uh, he put it quite brilliantly. He said, mysticism, it begins with mist. It has eye in the center, and it ends with schism. And he was dead right, and Paul is pinpointing it here. Now, what's he getting at? Well, he's getting at people who are into visions. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. You know, someone says, oh, the, the, the Lord gave me this vision. And I had this marvelous vision from the Lord, and I've seen something. And, and this is the way to go on. This is the way to grow as a Christian. You've possibly come across people who say this. You know, there, there you are. You, you've got your nose in the Bible, but listen, I've had this direct link with the Lord, and he's given me visions. The Lord can give visions. Peter had one in Acts chapter 10. Paul had one in 2 Corinthians 12, though significantly it took him 14 years before he told anybody that he'd had it, and he only went public on it then because he really had to get traction with the Corinthians and cut their legs from underneath them and to make a point. But whatever the Lord in his sovereignty may choose to do, the way of holiness and of growth is not to be dependent upon visions. Chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Well, how would they receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Wind back to chapter 1. And verses 6 and 7, Paul speaks of the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing, just as it, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. Okay, we're not into the realm of visions here. You heard it and understood their minds were engaged. God's grace in all its truth, there was truth content. You learned it from Epaphras. Now, he goes on and says, Our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ, or servant of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. They've come into a very spiritual realm. They have love in the Spirit. But how did they get there? Not by God zapping them. Not by God zapping them at all. But through hearing. Hearing, understanding the truth of God's grace and learning the gospel. That's how they had received Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul now says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him. Doesn't it sound very ordinary? Do you ever have this experience that, that somebody's been on holiday and they say, oh, I went to a great church, you know, it was spiritual. It was powerful. People were having visions, and the, and the fellow up front, he'd had this marvelous vision from the Lord, and he shared it with us. And then it can all seem very ordinary, can't it? Just hearing someone teaching the word of God, 
You are hearing it. You're not feeling zapped. You're not seeing some stunning vision. You're hearing someone. And you're understanding something. And there's truth content. And you're learning something. Yes, yeah, well, that's the way. That's God's way. What Christians of former generations used to refer to as the proper use of the means of grace. As the great George Whitfield put it, God will be found in the use of the means that he has appointed. And the means that he has appointed is the exposition of his word. That's how these people came to faith. That's how they were to go on. That's how you and I are to go on as well. That doesn't mean to say that God can't give a vision. I'm, I'm not disputing that. That doesn't mean to say that God may not speak to someone in a dream in the night. What it is saying is that the way of making progress as a Christian is not to be seeking such things, but to be attending to the ministry of the word of God. And the trouble with that sort of teaching, you see, is that such people lose connection with the real Christ. Verse 19, he has lost connection with the head. That's the frightening thing. Because what happens, as Paul speaks to the Corinthians in his second letter, he speaks about a false Jesus who is preached. I, I've had an experience of this recently on social media, um, engaging with certain people. And, and they, the Jesus they are believing in is not the real Jesus who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. He's not the real Jesus who died and who rose and ascended. He's not the Jesus who is there at the right hand of God now, who is the Jesus we read about in the Bible. He's a different Jesus. And they think they're having connection with the real Jesus, but they lost connection with him. And of course, if you lose connection with the head, you start losing connection with the body. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. We grow in fellowship with all the people of God in communion with Christ. But once people start going down this road, what they do is they form a little holy clique within a church. They are the spiritual ones. And they get puffed up with pride because they've got, as it were, some, some special knowledge of God that, that lesser Christians haven't got. And if there is one thing that is fatal to spiritual growth, it's pride. It really is what caused the devil to be thrown out of heaven. But of course, it, it often doesn't end there where they form this sort of special spiritual clique. They feel they're so spiritual that they've got to leave the church they're in to form their own special spiritual group. They lose connection with the head. They get puffed up with their own spiritual notions and they lose connection with God's people. But it's as we are held together that we grow in fellowship with God's people. So... Don't look back the way of legalism. Don't look down the way of false humility. Don't look in the way of mysticism. Time has gone. So fourthly and finally, don't look out externalism, verses 20 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value 
in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, of course, sometimes there are things that people mustn't handle or touch. That's what Jesus is driving at when he says, if your right hand offend you, cut it off and throw it away. And if you've cut off your right hand, you can't touch anything with your right hand, can you? He's saying there are certain things, and those things may not be sinful, but they may cause you to offend. They may cause you to sin. They may lead you into sin. And if they do that to you, then you would have cut off your right hand. Wasn't there a fellow who had a climbing accident who had to do that, I think? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. There are certain things that you Notice if it offends you. He's not speaking of the thing causing offense, and that's so important. He says, if your right hand offends you, there's something about you, says Jesus. And if that means that it's leading you into sin, you've got to chop it off and throw it away. So let me give a very obvious, concrete example. Here is somebody, this has been a big thing in South Wales in the past, a lot of heavy drinking. Somebody's been a heavy drinker, he comes to faith in Christ, and he realizes, I've I, got I, I to avoid that like the plague. I, I had an example of this not that long ago, within the last, last two or three years, taking the funeral of a man and his best friend, his best friend. He was in the car, um, coming from the funeral back to where the, the social was and the, you know, the Family were getting together, these, these were Christians, uh, but it was being held in a rugby club. And, and this brother, who was the closest friend of the man who had died, said, I don't go in there. I can't come there. I know if I go to that rugby club because there'll be beer available, I'll be back where I was. He was cutting off his right foot. All credit. The problem comes when somebody then makes that biblical principle that if something offends us, we must cut off our right foot and elevates the application of that principle to say, now everybody's got to cut off their right foot because I can't drink that beer because it's going to lead me back where I was. Therefore, nobody must. So these man, that becomes then a man-made rule. It's a divine rule that if, our hand offends us, if our eye offends us, if our foot offends us, we must cut them off and throw them away. That's a biblical rule. But it is not a biblical rule. If I've got to cut off my right hand, if it's leading me into sin, that everybody else has got to cut off their right hand because the problem is not with the thing out there. The problem, of course, is with the abuse of it. The abuse of it. Everything God created is good and is to be received with thanksgiving. That is, if it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer, if it's used in the way that God intended it. So this externalism, it then begins to assess people as well. It looks very spiritual, doesn't it? And Paul is aware that such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Didn't relate Dr. Lloyd-Jones when he was in Port Talbot, he refused to identify himself with the temperance movement. 
And he said that some of the people who were strongest in the temperance movement were in other areas of their life, some of the most intemperate people he'd ever come across. They couldn't control their temper. They couldn't control their self-righteousness. That's the sort of thing Paul is getting at here. So many of these external rules had a good origin for the people who applied it to themselves, but they go to seed and they become dangerous when you elevate them into a universal rule that has to be imposed upon all Christians. So there are four things that we've got to guard against. Legalism, looking, don't look back. False humility, don't look down. Mysticism, don't look in. Externalism, don't look out. What are we to do? Well, you can bear with me just for a few moments. Let me just say what we do, we do look up. Because if you look at verses 11 down to 15, or rather 9 down to 15, it's all about union with Christ. And then he picks that back up. He breaks off in verse 16 to deal with these wrong views. And then in chapter 3, he picks it up and he says, look, there's something to consider. You've been raised with Christ. Set your mind there. Set your heart there. Something to consider. Something to kill. That's in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. Something to kill. Verses 5 to 7, killing sin. Something to cast off. Verses 8 to 11. And then virtues with which to clothe ourselves. Verses 12 to 14. And that is to be done comprehensively. Verses 15 to 17 in the church. Verses 18 to 21 in the family. Verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1 in the workplace. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 in society at large. And chapter 4, verses 2 to 4 in our devotional life before God. A comprehensive life. Looking up. Emphasizing union with Christ, and because we are united to Christ, we must kill everything that's alien to his kingdom, and we must put on the virtues of the kingdom and do that comprehensively in every area of life. That is how we're to go on. As we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him.